One of the difficulties of controlling illegal opioids is that it comes mixed in with other substances. Sometimes detecting it can take hours of chemical analysis and pose dangers to law enforcement lab people. My next guest is a chemist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology who developed a way to cut the analysis time from hours to seconds. For his work, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Dr. Edward Sisko joins me now. Dr. Sisko, good to have you in studio. Thank you for having me. Opioid, illegal, fentanyl, this kind of thing is very potent. So therefore, it gets cut into other substances as it's imported. What's going on here? Yeah, so the main issue um, with fentanyl coming into the country is it's very toxic. Um, so it's, usually you can't give it pure. Um, so what p- drug dealers will do is they'll cut it with a bunch of other material, um, whether that's other drugs like heroin or just inert materials that they have lying around. And then they'll cut it up, package it, and go on and sell it. And so our goal is to figure out technology that can help law enforcement and forensic labs do an analysis quicker and safer um, to determine if there's fentanyl or other potent drugs present in that evidence. So it comes in from presumably China as pure, and then the people that receive it then cut it for distribution in this country. Either in this country or in other countries, yep. And by the way, does it come in a liquid? What form does it come in? It's typically a white powder. And so then what does it get cut with? It can be any anything you could imagine. Um, heroin's a big one. Other fentanyls, different types of fentanyl is a big one. Things like quinine, levamisole, veterinary drugs, baby formula powder, lactose, all, anything that is a powder that you might want to put in there. They will put so in there. then the people that have to have it then can choose which way they want to take it. Is baby food or is it dog biscuit? My assumption is that the person taking it probably doesn't know what other stuff is in there when they go to take it. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Then what is the issue with detection? Then what makes it difficult for labs to, to find this out? The biggest thing is because it's so potent, it's present at a very low amount. And so all that other stuff that's mixed in when you go to a chemical analysis, that's what most instrumentation is going to see. Um, The second issue is it is so toxic that inhaling just a small amount of it could cause adverse reactions to either law enforcement or the forensic science. Um, And so we want to be able to detect it without having to open it uh, to get initial detection of is there something in there that we need to be concerned with or not. Right. So that if it was cut into some vitamin pill, for example, I guess there are home pill-making machinery nowadays, you wouldn't want to crush that pill in a lab lest you get a whiff of whatever is in there. Exactly. Yep. And what is the analysis that's typically done? Is it a spectrum analysis or how does it work? Typically what they do now in the forensics labs is they'll take a amount, small amount of that powder, dissolve it in a liquid and run on an instrument called uh, GCMS, which gives them the chemical profile of all the different things that are present um, in that sample. And that takes a couple hours to do that whole analysis. Plus, you have to break it up. So if they're on the trail of someone and they have to wait a couple of hours, there could be a lost time for law enforcement. And if they have to break it up, then there's the danger that you mentioned. So what is the technology or technique that you developed? So the technique that we're using is a variant of what's called DART, direct analysis in real time, mass spec. It has similar principles to the analysis they're using now, but we don't separate the compounds, um, which is the big difference in the time savings. And so we can take a swipe, just like when you go to the airport and they'll swipe your hands or your baggage for explosives detection. We'll use those exact same types of swipes. You can swipe the outside of the drug evidence, stick it in the the instrument, and then in a number of seconds, you'll have the results of what's in there. And this is a sort of optical instrument? No, it's mass-based. So we're measuring the mass of the molecules in the sample. From a tiny sample that you might swab with like a Q-tip. Exactly. Yeah. If you see the sample, it's too much sample for us. Wow. You're a PhD in research chemistry, so this is a, basically a chemical process. Yep. It's a chemical analysis process. Yep. Interesting. And it takes how long then? Uh, about three seconds, you'll have a result. Does law enforcement require, then they have to require special equipment 
to be able to do this. Yeah, so this is a lab. Right now, it's a laboratory-based instrument. So you'd have to bring the evidence to a laboratory, a forensics lab, and they could do this analysis for you. But they can get you the result much quicker than they could nowadays. We're speaking with Dr. Edward Sisko. He's a research chemist at NIST and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Just out of curiosity, you're a young guy. You just have a PhD in chemistry locally from the University of Maryland. How did you happen to get into NIST? What what motivated you to join federal service? A um, little bit of fate. So I got my undergraduate degree at West Virginia University uh, in forensic science. Went on to get my decided when I was graduating whether I wanted to go into PhD, get a master's, decided to get a PhD. And the program I was at actually allowed me to go wherever I wanted to do my research as long as I could find funding for it. And so through a Department of Defense scholarship, I was able to actually stay at NIST or do my PhD research at NIST. And then I was able to get hired on after the fact and I haven't left. So what is your contribution to be able to earn a PhD? Because we're talking chemistry, not Flemish art of the 17th century here. My thesis is really two different areas. One was looking at the chemistry of latent fingerprints to see if we could figure out how old a fingerprint is based on the chemistry in it. And the second was um, trace explosives detection using a similar technology to what we're discussing today. Yeah, so your theme then is very tiny amounts that give very large amounts of data. Yes, exactly. So molecules, really, instead of blobs, you yep. might say, or, or tangible amounts. Got it. And uh, what's it like at NIST? I mean, it seems like they are pretty supportive of this type of work. Yeah, NIST has really doubled down in forensics research in the last seven years or so. I think it's a great place to work. It's You have a lot of autonomy. Um, you're able to kind of work very closely with stakeholders. So I work very closely with a number of the forensics labs locally, internationally, and that really helps us drive what research we're doing. And the, our directors are really supportive of that kind of approach. And taking this small swab type of technical approach to detecting the elements in a, in a particular substance, what happens if the fentanyl is in a tiny cell deep in the pill and you rub the outside and you won't get the fentanyl or whatever it is you're looking for or everything that's in there? Is that a possibility? It's definitely a possibility. Um, we've rigorously tested that. So we've gone over, we've done over a thousand samples of this type of analysis and we're at greater than 95% accuracy in predicting what drugs are present in terms of fentanyl. We haven't missed fentanyl yet. The technique we're using actually is extremely sensitive to fentanyl more so than other drugs. Sure. And the technology and the machinery, is it commercially available at this point or does it only exist in, in the NIST labs? No, it is commercially available. Any laboratory could adopt it if they so choose. So a large city police lab, for example, or an FBI lab or somewhere could, is that what you've seen? Yeah, and we have worked with laboratories throughout the country on helping them bring this technology in and uh, up and running. So what's your next project? Um, we're really trying to push this type of platform for our surveillance uh, idea. So can we use it to get real-time information to help public health efforts in determining if they start seeing a certain type of, of fentanyl or a certain type of compound that's being attributed to a lot of overdoses, can they initiate a public health response to help limit the damage? But it strikes me this could be used for detection of adulteration in any number of domains, like food, where it's not fentanyl you're looking for, it, but maybe, I don't know, didn't China itself have an issue with baby formula cut with things that weren't really proper for a baby to ingest. Yeah, there's definitely a number of applications of food, agriculture, pesticides would be a big one as well from the agricultural perspective, a um, number of areas where you could use this type of technology. Dr. Edward Sisko is a research chemist at NIST and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving 
our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and 
how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. 
Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.